And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Welcome to the Sustainability Story, a podcast hosted by CFA Institute, where we talk to thought leaders in the ESG and sustainable investor world to help investors understand the world of environmental, social, and governance investment and analysis. John, thanks for joining us today. It's good to see you. Always good to talk to you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you to the CFA Institute. Not a problem. Well, let's get right into it. Can you give us kind of a fact about modern portfolio theory that kind of helps frame the conversation uh, for everybody listening to, to let us let them know where we're going? Sure. I think um, I'll give you two facts. One, modern portfolio theory is now 75 years old. That's the first fact, or 70 years old. The second fact is that when Harry Markowitz was examining the markets to come up with MPT, um, the markets were 92% the U.S. equity market was 92% retail. Clearly, markets have changed, and we believe that has um, led to examining some of the omissions of modern portfolio theory. That's a great way to tee things up. So we talked a little bit about an intro about the book you wrote, and we'll get into that, but can you frame a little more in detail kind of where we've been on modern portfolio theory, where we are and where we're going, and then we'll get into some specific questions. Sure. Um, where we've been, so MPT didn't invent diversification. Um, we actually traced that back to Cervantes writing in the 17th century in Don Quixote, where he says, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Having, having said that, MPT did invent the math that enables us all to take advantage of diversification in an efficient and effective way. And that unleashed a revolution. Um, I said at the beginning that it was 92% retail at the time. Well, MPT unleashed the need or the desire for prepackaged diversified products, otherwise known as mutual funds, ETFs, whatever. And so it led to the institutionalization of the market. The issue with MPT, even from the beginning, is you had to make some heroic assumptions to not just make the math work, but to hermetically seal off the math from the complexities and confusions of the real world. So we look at it and think there are three major issues. One is rationality, the so-called um, homo economist, that will always make a rational choice. And yet later, obviously, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for saying, you know, humans aren't so rational. They're actually risk-inverse, not loss-inverse, which leads to the second assumption, Bert Malkiel's random walk. Well, if you are loss-inverse, then where you bought something at matters, so there's path dependency. 
Moreover, there's path dependency around things like contagion, where you sell what's liquid to not have to sell what's impaired, but not so liquid at a bargain basic price. And then the third, of course, is efficient market hypothesis. And we're far from the only people to criticize it. And I'll just point out that um, if efficient market hypothesis really worked, um, there'd be no arbitrage desks. We wouldn't need any insider trading rules. So what, but what all three of those things do is they simplify the relationship between the math of the real world, the math of model portfolio theory with the real world so that you don't have to take into account how humans actually think, path dependency for multiple organizations, how information gets disseminated into the marketplace. That's where we are and where we have, been, where, where we had been. I think where we are now is the institutionalization of the marketplace is almost the inverse of where Markowitz was. We're now 90% institutional. Markowitz, because it was retail, assumed all investors were price takers. In fact, as we know, there are lots of price makers out there, uh, both good and bad. I mean, the whole, you know, in, in terms of affecting the market. Um, and he assumed that non-diversifiable systematic risk was exogenous to investors. And we now look at things like risk on, risk off markets or index effects and understand that in fact, um, the system, systematic nature of the marketplace is affected by people's portfolios. Where we are going is diversification is a great tool to deal with idiosyncratic risk. The problem is what we call the MPT paradox. Idiosyncratic risk only amounts, depending on the academic study you want to cite, to 6 to 25% of your variability in return. In other words, what overwhelmingly determines your return, so 75 to 94% of it, is just the non-diversifiable systematic price movements of the marketplace. And where we are going now is trying to understand not just the summary statistics of volatility, but what causes volatility, which is usually the real world, I'm sure we'll get to it, and trying to figure out ways to mitigate those causes so as to improve the overall risk return of the marketplace. That's great. That's a great frame. And it gets me right into uh, uh, our next question is, you know, this, this podcast is the sustainability story. We talk about ESG and sustainability, and that's a lot about what your book talks about into the where we're going. And so how can, and you talk about how investors can uh, better mitigate that systemic risk you talked about, and it gets into some of the, the, the talking about things like double materiality, talking things about integrating ESG into the investment process. Can you go into a little bit about that systemic risk issue? and what investors need to be doing. Sure. We wrote a finance book, but it clearly has not just ESG, but sustainability and impact relevance. Because if you understand that, let's just call it 75% of total return, is systematic, then the question is what causes the markets, the multiples to expand or contract or jump around. And by and large, value is created in the real world. It's priced in the capital markets, but created in the real world. 
as is risk. A healthy capital market translates that value creation, but the value creation itself is dependent largely on three systems. The environmental system, which doesn't get priced. I mean, your listeners, I'm sure, have heard more than enough about that. Um, the social system and the financial system in the real world. Risks to those systems metastasize into this non-diversifiable systematic risk um, in the capital markets. And so particularly universal owners, but now anyone who's got a diversified portfolio, if you bought an S&P 500 index fund, is starting to think about things like climate change. It's going to affect all my securities. Gender diversity. Why do boards not have women on the board when all the academic literature says a diversity is helpful? Um, and I think investors are taking action at two levels. We tend to think about things like gender or climate as affecting the whole market, and it largely does. Um, and then we tend to think about the individual company level, but some of the most interesting activities that investors have been taking are at the industry level. Because if you think about it, an industry has the same systemic risks to it, and you can game your competitors by externalizing them. If, in fact, your owners start saying, no, we want guardrails around the industry's systemic risks, because while it may benefit company A relative to company B, I own companies A through Z, and in fact, it impoverishes my overall portfolio. So a great example of this is in the extractive industries. We may think of extractive industries as your know, 19th century UK coal mines, but the reality is if you have, if you want a computer, if you want an iPhone, you need mining, you need extractive industries. The problem with extractive industries was that until recently, a lot of it's done in remote developing markets, sometimes near indigenous people. And um, when you mine things, you also wind up often with dangerous waste. These are held behind dams, they're called tailing dams, um, or in waste heaps. And a couple of years ago, there was a huge collapse of one that killed 260 people, 259 people in Brazil. But it turns out that these collapses were like an every other month occurrence. They just killed six people and they were somewhere else that you'd never heard of. But they were impacting the overall industry. And so uh, the Church of England uh, commissioners and the AP funded in Sweden got together ultimately with the industry and uh, the UN and found the Investor Mining and Tailing Compact uh, initiative. And they've done a great job. There are now, the industry has now signed on to minimal safety standards for these dams. No one knew where these dams were. As I said, they tend to be in developing countries, private property off the beaten path. We now know where two thirds, uh, where two thirds of the dams are, what they're constructed of. And so they're elevating the entire industry. And it's that sort of mitigation of real world risk that matters. By the way, that mining collapse cut $18 billion off the value of the company that owned that mine. So these are not small numbers, particularly when you magnify it across the whole industry.
That gets me to another thing uh, we wanted to talk about, the issue of uh, materiality uh, in ESG. We're right in the middle of uh, writing a paper on it ourselves at CFA uh, to give people a little bit of a tease for what's coming down the road from us uh, probably in the fall. But let's talk about it's a huge issue in the, in the ESG world. You know, for, for that, for the mining, for that industry, you know, those, those tailing ponds was a huge material issue that hadn't, it was an externality that hadn't been priced. You know, climate change is an externality that hasn't been priced. It's, it's material to a lot of companies in a lot of different ways. But as you said, climate's something that no company can really escape in the coming years, coming decades. What's your view on materiality and how you talk about it in the book and how it, how it relates to uh, you know, what modern portfolio theory misses and what we need to include going forward. So we talk about materiality, not as a state, but as a process of becoming material because things which are not yet material, how resilient is your, your workforce in a pandemic? What's your reaction to climate change? Things can become material over time. I mean, look, slavery, unfortunately, was a backbone of 18th century capitalism. You know, I don't think people would, I mean, there is modern slavery and I don't mean to minimize it, but the reality is values becoming value is a dynamic that has happened through the years, not just on moral issues, but on scientific issues. Climate change is the example now. Pollution in groundwater and air pollution was an example in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and so different things become material. What has changed now, and I hate to go back to it, but in, in many ways, practices led theory, and it was an interesting book to write because what, you, what we had to do was look around and say, what is practice? So I hate to go back to it, but when you are an institutional investor when, or an individual investor and you're diversified, then the traditional view of materiality, what's going to affect an individual company still matters, but so does what is that company going to do to affect my overall portfolio and the systemic risks in the real world. Um, and so if you are, if you, if you, for instance, owned a single company, a coal-fired plant on some remote island, and you were never near it, it even makes economic sense to externalize everything. But if you now own the fishing fleet around that island, if you own, um, if, if you want a, a workforce that doesn't die quickly and you don't have to import people to the island, if you don't want government regulation of various emissions beyond that call plant, all these externalities work their way back through the system. Now, universal owner theory says they get re-internalized into your portfolio as costs, or by the way, externalities can be positive, so maybe benefits. But we have taken it a step beyond that and talked about how these get re-internalized through the environmental, social, and financial systems and how that affects the overall tenor of the marketplace. Um, and so rather than say the emissions from that coal plant get re-internalized, what we would say is the emissions from that coal plant affect the environmental system, um, which affects the health of the marketplace overall. That leads perfectly into talk about beta activism, that you talk about 
uh, in the book. And I think that's probably a new term to a lot of people. So talk about, uh, if you could explain a little bit about what beta activism is and how you see it going forward. So just, I want to lead into this in a very specific way. I get really tired of people bashing the finance sector. And this is a great example of the finance sector starting to get it right. So beta activism is trying to affect these systemic risks that affect the entire market or a large portion of the market, such as the Mighty Retailer Initiative. Um, I, we use the phrase beta activism to distinguish it from alpha activism, the type of thing that Carl Icahn or Tryon might do at an individual company. And you can see it all over the place. One of my favorite examples, just because I live in New York, is the Fearless Girl statue was put there by State Street to try to um, dramatize its commitment to gender diversity. And of course, State Street's not the only one, just in large companies. Everyone is now voting against boards that don't have women on it. Um, Goldman Sachs won't run an IPO if, uh, if there are no women on the board. Legal in general um, will vote against it if there are at least two women on the on the board, et cetera. And while there are a lot of other things that have gone into increasing gender diversity, still too slow, but heading in the right direction, um, including the Me Too movement and the California law that mandates 30% uh, gender diversity on corporations domiciled in, in California, a recent academic paper says that the efforts of investors since 2017 have resulted in two and a half times more women being appointed to the board starting in 2019 than was previous to the um, initiative. And there are more than 100 beta activism campaigns going on right now. Um, they stem from deforestation, excuse me, they range from deforestation, climate, biodiversity, or some obvious environmental ones. Um, you have the Boardroom Accountability Project and Proxy Access. Uh, being run by the New York City pension funds. You've got um, antimicrobial resistance being run by Nordea. Um, I just saw a nature um, consortium of funds was formed two days ago. Um, it is such a popular thing right now that when we started thinking about the book five years ago, we could count them on our hand and we were going to profile each one at the end of the book. Um, at this point, with over 100, we just profiled six to give people an idea because you just can't keep up. And I think the finance industry has gotten this right and deserves a lot of credit for it. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Uh, and, and folks like the, the Investment Integration Project, you know, looking at systems uh, and trying to get investors to, to look at the systems that we all live in and inhabit. Uh, and like, as you said before, you know, the biodiverse system, the, the, you know, the, the E and the S of ESG are systems that we really hadn't thought about. The TIP does great work. Uh, the two principles of TIP, Bill Burkhart and Steve Leidenberg, also have a new book out. We've been doing some work together. We think our book, Modernizing Modern Portfolio Theory, is sort of the why and the theory of this. And their book, 21st Century Investing, is sort of the how. So they're actually a, a good combination. Yeah. Well, let me threaten our podcast listeners with, have, I'll have them on uh, in a little while. Uh, somebody had to come first. So I'll put, I'll put you first, but uh, yes, I'm, I'll be reaching out to them as well. Uh, we both came up uh, in the corporate governance world. Uh, and in the book, you talk about that we're in the, we're in the third stage of corporate governance. 
explain that a little bit. I've I've read the book, so I know the answer. But explain <laughs> explain to uh, explain to our listeners so, what, you, what you're talking about. Here's your 350 uh, three and a half century tour in three minutes. Stage zero starts with the first modern Western eternally live company or long live company, the Dutch East India Company. And the reason we say stage zero is, look, obviously things change over 300 years, but even then the power locus became clear. The executives, to use a contemporaneous, a contemporaneous phrase, got rich in the power of mushrooms in the dark. So you had executive compensation issues. Um, you had capital structure issues. The executives stopped paying dividends. There was a protest, including the world's first short seller. And then they paid dividends for all. Then they decided to pay dividends in nutmeg and black pepper rather than in money. So the power was clearly established. It was going to be the executives for the next 300 years or so. This is a really contentious version. Cut to the 1980s, and it is what I call this dystopian landscape of raiders, white knights, deadhead pills, poison pills, goodbye kisses. And there was a lot of green mail going on. Green mail for the younger members of this audience um, is sort of a cyber ransom attack. Someone approaches the CEO and says, gee, I own a lot of your company, and I either want to replace you or maybe I'll do a hostile takeover. But... If you just buy me out at a premium, I'll go away. And this was fairly common at Goodyear Tire and Rubber, at Quaker, at Disney. In one year, there were $4 billion of premiums paid, and that's not inflation adjusted. That sparked um, the Council of Institutional Investors to be formed. And so the first set of corporate governance was around these sort of rent-seeking behaviors by executives. And what made it different was by then the institutionalization had begun. So whereas for 300 years, there was no countervailing force, all of a sudden investors realized they had some power, but that was focused on individual companies and governance. 2000, so that's stage one. Stage two, PRI gets formed in 2005 and a more holistic view of value, including the E and the S get added. And it's not that that wasn't there before. Series principles, an environmental group was formed in 1989. Apartheid in South Africa was a major issue through the 80s. And so, but really the focus on ESG holistically started around 2005. And then more recently, what changed was, that was although it was more holistic, it was still at an individual company. Stage three is this beta activism where investors are using tools not just to affect individual companies, to, but to affect whole swaths of the marketplace. That's great. You, you could be a professor of corporate governance and teach your five-minute course. Uh, that, that's a great summary of things. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I wish we had more time, but I want to leave our audience with, uh, I don't want to let them off too easy. I want to leave them with a little bit of homework. Besides your book, which of course they should all read. If I had to read it, they, sh they should read it as well. But it, uh, it wasn't a chore. Uh, I, it's a, it's a good, it's a nice academic book with not not any Greek symbols as I can remember, which is the kind I like. But what do you what are you reading that you think folks should should check out? Well, I'll second our book, but that's that's the self-referential book. Um, I'm reading Andrea Bonin Blanc's Gloom to Boom, which is. Um, a risk, an experienced risk manager talking about ESG type risks 
to leadership and boards. I think it's really good. And then just for fun, I'm rereading um, something I haven't read since uh, for 30 years or so, which is Robertson Davies' Fifth Business, which is a novel. And it is useful because um, a sub-theme of it is sort of the miraculous in everyday life. And given how consumed we all are in what we do in our day jobs, it's nice to take a step back and just think about those things every once in a while. Those are great recommendations. John, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care. 